Today we're starting a new series. Uh, we just wrapped up Jude, and this new series is brilliantly called Love Money. Pretty straightforward. Uh, you've, you've probably heard people say, you know, money is the root of evil. Or maybe in the words of Tupac, uh, money made me evil. Uh, they're, they're wrong. Right? They're unwittingly misquoting the Bible. Uh, Paul wrote in his first letter to Timothy, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's the love of money that's problematic. Uh, when our hearts and our lives get caught up in the pursuit of money, only then does it become a root of many kinds of evils. And so in this series, we're going to explore the problem of the love of money. But more importantly, we want to talk about what a healthy relationship with money looks like. Because when we have our eyes and our hearts fixed upon God's economy, we see that true gains extend far beyond anything we could ever earn on this earth. And so our passage for this series is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 19. It's just 13 verses that we're going to look at over the next three weeks. And the, the verse we're going to focus on this week is uh, the, the first few, verses 6 through 10. And the gist of them is this. When we love money, we might gain riches, uh, but we also gain discontentment because our love, it's misdirected. And so I want to look at three things this morning. The first is just discontentment, the missing ingredient, and the redirection of our love. So open your Bibles with me, if you have one, uh, to 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. Paul writes to Timothy, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we've brought nothing into the world and we, can take, we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Paul starts with this, godliness with contentment is great gain. Leaving the godliness piece aside for now, we can all agree contentment is great gain. We all want contentment. You know, our first reading this morning was from Philippians 4, verses 10 through 11, where Paul says, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. And I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Who doesn't want in on that? But how do we get to that place, that sort of contentment? I don't know about you guys, but when I need life advice, you know, how to improve my life, how to find contentment, I often turn to Conan the Barbarian. Uh, and this is what Conan has to say about contentment. I live, I love, I slay, and I am content. Wonders of his wisdom. Uh, my concern about Conan's approach to contentment is, what happens when there's none left to slay? None left to give or receive love when life passes away? Is contentment always contingent upon favorable circumstances, a quality of life? Uh, I think we often live as if it is. Paul's words and the secret that he's telling us about seem a little far-fetched in our day-to-day -day lives. And we often become discontent because we expect a certain quality of life that is either fleeting or that we're yet to attain. And we live as if there's a price tag to contentment. You know, to be truly content, we feel we just need the right amount of money, a certain amount of money, because money is a means to almost all things. And if we could just make enough, then we could have the quality of life we want, the stuff we want, and yeah, then we'll be content. 
But maybe you're thinking, no, like that's not how I think. That's not how I relate to money. I don't live like that. Well, have you ever thought, if I could just have enough to take that next vacation, then I'll be content. If I could just afford to buy a home, or it's Vancouver, just rent more than a shoebox, you know, then I'll be content. If I could just pay off my mortgage or my student loans or my credit cards, then I'll be content. If I could just save a little more money, then I'll be ready to move forward in my relationship, and then I'll be content. You know, if my investments continue to perform well and I can start get the raise that I want so I can start contributing towards my retirement, then I'll be content, then I'll be safe. No, we keep living as if more money will give us more freedom, more time to relax, more time to enjoy life. And that's the secret of contentment. A few years ago, a very interesting survey was done. Uh, They asked people who made between $30,000 and $50,000 a year, how much would it take for you not to have to worry about money ever again, to be content? And they said, by and large, $74,000. And so then they asked people who who made $74,000 to $100,000. What would it take for you guys to be content? And they said, I don't know, $150,000 to $200,000, and I'd never have to worry about money again. So then they asked people who made $150,000 to $200,000, how much money would it take for you guys to be content? They said, probably half a million. And on and on and on, into the millions, uh, it was always around the corner. The right amount of money was always a little elusive. You see, like Conan the Barbarian, our contentment, is often contingent upon our circumstances, a quality of life that we feel we need. Uh, but we change his motto ever so slightly. You know, I, I live, I love, I have the right amount of money, and I am content. And we have this notion if we can just be self-sufficient, then we'll be okay, and what's required to do that is money. What's interesting is the word that Paul uses for contentment uh, could be translated self-sufficient. And scholars uh, propose that Paul is actually critiquing Stoic philosophy that was prevalent in his day and community. Uh, The the idea was that somehow on your own, uh, you can be self-sufficient and not depend upon God and and be kind of detached from material things and find this source of contentment. And I think we unwittingly live by this ancient Stoic philosophy. We we, we desire to be independent and self-sufficient. And so we pursue money. But because of this, our contentment fluctuates based uh, on just how our lives are going. You know, it's easy to be content when your life is going well, when you have enough money in the account, when you're not getting insufficient funds messages, you know, when you can buy the food you want. But on a difficult day, you know, when the bills eat up all your money, when you're just bored, discontentment sets in. And in reality, we're we're, we're bouncing back and forth between contentment and discontentment. And the one moment we have it, and the next, it's gone. When we come to realize this, the common response is we actually try to emotionally detach from stuff and money. Right? We think... Well, if I just don't care about these things, if I don't put as much value in these things, if I rise above them, if I can just float through life in a quasi-meditative state, then I'll be content. But the truth is, most of us, we're just struggling to figure out how to be content in our day-to-day lives, paying our bills, facing our work, our in-laws, our our, our brothers or our sisters. And we can't find lasting contentment in these situations. Nor can we detach ourselves emotionally from these things. 
But when Paul wrote that he was content in any and every situation, he wrote that from a prison cell. And he wrote it having been in experiences of deep need, not knowing where the next meal was coming from. That sort of contentment, that truly would be great gain. But maybe you're thinking, day in, day out, by and large, I'm content. Yeah, it's fleeting at times, but mostly content. But I think this begs the question, are you content or are you just comfortable? Wallace Stevens, a a poet, he, he writes this, even in contentment, I feel the need for some imperishable bliss. Even in contentment, I feel the need for some imperishable bliss. Even when we get what we want, even when we find contentment in our circumstances, there's this creeping awareness that it will not last, that our momentary contentment awakes this desire for lasting contentment. And it should make us realize that we're not actually content. Right now, we're just comfortable. And so Wallace, he goes on to write, the moment you realize it's over, it's like a dagger in the heart. Because as, co- as comfortable as we can be, we know it can't last. We want something imperishable, but it evades us. It can't be bought. So what we're experiencing then, I don't think, is the contentment Paul is describing. The discontentment we feel, the the fleeting nature of the comforts we do experience, um, we should see these simply as symptoms with some underlying problems. And and one of the problems of of many in our lives is the love of money. The issue is the love of money. This is why Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 through 10, that those who desire to be rich, it means those who chase after money thinking that it will somehow fulfill their lives, they fall into temptation into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. When we think that having the right amount of money will bring us the quality of life we need to find contentment, we deceive ourselves. We've actually run into a snare that plunges us into ruin and destruction. And and one of the signs that we've placed our love in money is discontentment. You're not discontent because you don't have enough money. You're actually discontent because you've misdirected your love towards money. And money, it can't deliver. You see, the problem is that by and large, we, we, we pursue contentment just on its own, or we couple it with the pursuit of money. But these approaches, they suffer from a missing ingredient. It's a lot like cooking spaghetti, obviously. Let's leave the sauce out of this for now. Uh, Just preparing the noodles. You know, it seems like a no-brainer. Throw them in a pot of boiling water, take them out, you know, throw it against the wall to check, and then you're good to go. And when I was a kid, we had this babysitter who'd come over, and she'd make us food. And I remember this. We were around 10, and my sister and I were hungry. And she said, well, what do you want to eat? And all there was in in the house was a box of spaghetti. I said, well, let's let's eat spaghetti. And so she put on the boiling water, threw in the in the noodles, and about 20 minutes later, took them off and served us spaghetti. And uh, it tasted like vomit. Uh, There is a key ingredient missing. There's a key ingredient that I've learned as an adult that's required when you're making spaghetti, just the noodles, sauce aside. Uh, Time. Time really matters. It's an important one. If you want your spaghetti al dente, you know, the right amount of time is required for the, the, the noodles to be firm but not crunchy. You know, too little time, it's going to be like eating cardboard. Too much time, you know, it's like dog-flavored mush. Uh, 
what is the missing ingredient with our contentment issue then? Back to verse 6. Paul says it's contentment with godliness that is great gain. He's essentially saying that godliness should correct both our sense of self-sufficiency and contentment. It won't work without godliness. You won't find contentment without godliness. And for some of you, this just might irk you. Because when you think of godliness, you think of religiosity. And when you think of religious people, you just think of rules that you have to keep. And, And godliness, it's not a gain. It's restrictive. It's limiting. It's oppressive. It's boring. You know, it seems antithetical towards contentment. But this is not what Paul has in mind when he speaks of godliness. It's not about pseudopiety. It's it's not about restrictions and rules. It's about our ultimate good and flourishing. It's about being anchored in who we truly are and in our actual place within the world in relation to God. Look at verse 7. Paul goes on to say, For we brought nothing into the world... And we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Paul reminds us, we brought nothing into the world. Except for me, I was born wearing a monocle. That's a story for another time. Uh, Besides this anomaly, you know, it's true. We bring absolutely nothing into the world. We're, We're born naked, exposed, vulnerable, helpless, crying, completely dependent on others to take care of us. We bring nothing. Zilch, nada. Yet Paul adds, we cannot take anything out of the world. Whatever we gain, whatever riches we acquire, whatever stuff we accumulate, we can't take it with us. It's staying behind. We leave as we came with nothing. Verse 7 could actually be translated. We bring nothing into the world because we cannot bring anything out of the world. Our existence is this. We arrive empty-handed because we're going to leave empty-handed. And we will never outgrow this basic reality of our humanity. We are not self-sufficient creatures. We are dependent creatures. And our existence on this earth is temporary. And the stuff we gather during our stay does not prepare us for entering through the veil of death. So in other words, Paul's asking, why on earth would you spend your time pursuing money as if it can bring you contentment? It'll do nothing to give you contentment here and now, and it will do infinitely less in preparing you for eternity. But Paul also wants us to see that we're not created for stuff. We're not created to consume. Uh, Yes, we have material needs. Paul recognizes this. He says in verse 8, if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But our problem is that we often confuse what we want with what we need. Actually, in our Western world, I think we've lost sight of what actual human need is. When Paul says food and clothing will be good to go, you know, he's not talking about an absolutely delightful meal at Cactus Club in your favorite outfit from Banana Republic. And I know some of you are thinking right now, Cactus Club? Come on, I eat at Hawksworth and I show up at Holt Renthrew. You know, exactly. Uh, Remember, Paul knows what it is to be in need. He has suffered the loss of all things. He has gone without food. He has been imprisoned, and yet he remains content. And in writing this, I don't think he's advocating poverty, but I think he is endorsing a simple lifestyle. The basic needs, if you have those, contentment will abound. And he says, even if you don't, contentment can abound. 
Because luxury and abundance, they will not provide the contentment that we want, let alone the self-sufficiency we crave. So if we're feeling discontent, if contentment seems fleeting, we should turn to these words by C.S. Lewis. If I find in myself a desire which no experience can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I think that is what Paul is trying to remind us. We want lasting contentment, a contentment the world can't provide, a contentment without a price tag. And Paul knows that this contentment can be fleeting, but does that mean it's solely available to the super pious, you know, the super godly who float through all of life's circumstances? No. Again, Paul says, I know what it is to be content in, in any situation. I know the secret. I have learned the secret of being content, he actually says. And we shouldn't take this point lightly. Contentment is something learned. If you don't possess it, if it's fleeting, that's okay. You can learn it. And the verb learned is actually in what scholars call the divine passive. It's a fancy way of saying that God is the educator when it comes to us learning contentment. God might put us in situations and struggles where we are discontent so that we can be taught true contentment by learning to lean into him and trust him in these times. And Paul, he's found God in all circumstances and his contentment is the accumulation of his learning which has led him to this place of being content in any and every circumstance. So what's the secret? Let's get to the secret of contentment. He doesn't hide it. Philippians 4.13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Paul can be content in all situations through the one who gives him strength. Contentment is contingent upon Jesus. Hence why Paul says in 1 Timothy 6.6, godliness with contentment is great gain. When he says Godliness, he's not talking about a badge, but a relationship with God and how we are defined in light of our faith in Christ. So Christian contentment then can be defined as satisfaction in God. It means your love is redirected towards Jesus instead of directed towards lesser things like money. Because contentment, it can't be found in ourselves or in our circumstances. It's found in nothing and no one, but in Jesus himself. It's not self-sufficiency or some posture that we muster up. Rather, Paul is saying that contentment is the result of Christ's sufficiency. Jesus gives us the strength to remain content. And when we access this strength in Christ, it doesn't mean that we just give up trying to change some bad circumstances that cause discontentment in our life. It actually means we try to change our circumstances if need, need be while depending upon the one who can make us content amidst the tension. And accessing Christ's strength to be content in any and all circumstances doesn't mean that you go through your circumstances dishonestly. If you're feeling pain, you're feeling pain. If you're discontent, you're discontent. You're not called to some disembodied emotional state where nothing affects you. Uh, Julia and I, we have not had a lot of luck uh, when it comes to our houses. Our first few homes when we got married were in Florida. That's where we met and got married. Uh, and in our first house, um, our neighbor pulled a gun on me and threatened to kill me. 
And uh, fortunately, I lived, as you can tell. But we moved the next day, right? Because that didn't seem like a very nice living situation. So a month later, in our new place, the air conditioner breaks and floods the entire floor. And, and our floors were ruined for two months. And we had to live in this house without floors for two months. And they, they finally got fixed. And literally a week later, a tropical storm came, knocked down a tree in our backyard, and fell on the house while we were in the house and destroyed the kitchen. Uh, after that, that house went into foreclosure, and black mold started growing in the unit in front of us because it wasn't taken care of. And so we had to move. And, and the next house, it was okay, except it didn't have central air conditioning in Florida. Uh, so it was very hot for two years. We moved to Vancouver. Our first place in Vancouver, wonderful. It was just heaven on earth to me. Julia hated it because, you know, it's a yuppie condo. But nothing went wrong, right? Nothing went wrong. And recently, we had the privilege of buying a townhome because my, my parents wanted to help us. You know, it's Vancouver. We would never be able to buy in Vancouver. But my parents, they wanted to get us into a home. And we were fortunate enough to even get to do some renovations. And so we bought this place in August. We moved in September. Renovations began in October. Uh, we, we gutted the kitchen and the downstairs. And literally on the last day, two months of renovations, like second to last day, a trade worker busts a pipe, floods the downstairs, ruins all of the renovations and all of our furniture. And now it's almost been two months since that has happened and nothing has been fixed because the insurance companies are debating who's going to pick up the bill. So if I'm honest with you, you know, going through these various housing situations, uh, one person once asked me just in a second, maybe you should pray more about your housing situation. <laughs> Don't ever say that to someone. Not helpful. Um, but I'll be honest with you. I, it's been a little bit of an emotional roller coaster. Like, yeah, having a gun pointed at me, that was interesting. But this time, like, I don't know why. Just the house, maybe it's because I own it and I'm just looking at the dollar signs. But it's been really hard to be content when our house is in disarray and falling apart like this. And often I've asked God, like, come on. Like, how is this even helpful? And I swing back and forth between contentment and discontentment. And yet, if I take a moment just to be still, feel Christ nudging me, feel like maybe just planting a thought or reminding me of a scripture. Like, I'm enough. I'm enough here, even if your home's in disarray. I'm enough. It's okay. Now, what's interesting is just because I'm content, it doesn't remove the emotional ramifications. I still feel frustrated. I still feel angry at our strata. And yet these things that I experience and feel in Christ can't rob me of a deeper peace and contentment. I don't deny that I'm feeling them, and yet because of Christ, they don't reign over me and rob me of contentment. We're going to be okay. No, and if we're not, we inherit Christ. In our frustrating or failed or seemingly futile circumstances, in our inability to muster up contentment, stands a continual invitation from God to learn contentment. And this should be comforting. This should be comforting. Because if, you're not, if you're, you're not content, if you're discontent, it's an opportunity to ask God for help. And he'll teach you contentment. And as you learn to trust him in various situations that you go through in life, the culmination will be a consistency of a lasting contentment that will not be robbed from you. Because God... He has no desire to burden us or to uh, 
rob us of life and joy. It's actually a delight to lean into him in any and all circumstances. And it's a delight when he roots out this notion of self-sufficiency in us because it never delivers anyways. And over and over and over and over again, he will invite us into this posture of Christ's sufficiency. And while the pursuit of money is one of the major culprits, I think, of discontentment in our cultural time, I'd be remiss not to address just a handful of other ones. You know, maybe you've heard all this before. You know this stuff. But you're in a place where you're blaming God because you're not content with your lot. And maybe you're skeptical. It doesn't really seem day to day that Jesus is actually enough. Following Jesus hasn't made your life any easier, but harder in this season. But Jesus never promised an easier life. He promised a better life. What you need to realize is that Jesus didn't give his life on the cross so that you could have all that you want, but so that you could be given all that you need. And until you marvel in the richness of that, you'll always be missing the point. And so, if you question God, if you're, if you're saying, are you providing for my needs? It's a good practice to first point the finger at ourselves and ask, are we confusing our needs with our wants? And if you're sincerely lacking in your needs, first, let us know, because as a community, we're supposed to bear one another's burdens and share our resources with one another. If you're in need, come talk to us. But also take this posture of the scriptures, a prayerful waiting, somewhat belligerent posture with God. Like, God, I need you to show up. God, I need you to provide. But I'm going to wait. And Paul's promise is that we can even find contentment there, in that place. But maybe you're discontent because you're walking through the hell of disobedience. Maybe you're actively disobeying God. You know, maybe you're refusing to participate in what God is asking you to do. And I don't know what that looks like. Maybe he's saying, uh, move closer to the city or move to a different city. Or, or maybe you're supposed to repent of your love of money by giving, you know. Or maybe he's, he's calling you just take, to stop certain activities. And, and you know what this is for you. You know it right now. And maybe you've lost your contentment because God is working to bring you to repentance and you're just not listening. We don't have to get our lives all cleaned up to be content. I want to make that clear. But we do need to get them honest with God. And if you're disobeying him intentionally, you can't expect to be content. But there always stands a continual offer. Come. Let's work this out together. I have the forgiveness you need, and I have the strength you need to move forward. And maybe, though, you're, you're just discontent because you've never actually placed your faith and trust in the one who can give this sort of contentment. And you keep running after thing and thing, relationship and relationship, thinking, I'm going to find contentment in these things, but you don't find it. The only way that you're going to find a lasting contentment is in Christ Jesus. And if you're still trying to figure out, is Jesus really who he said he is? Is he really Lord? Is he really master? Take as long as you need to figure that out, but no longer than necessary. And know that you don't have to get your life cleaned up to experience Christ's forgiveness and and life. He offers you himself as you are. All you have to do is turn to him. And he'll meet you. And he'll give you strength.
Finally, I think we just need to consider what Paul really is trying to convey in this passage. Why would you spend your life pursuing money when it can't even bring you contentment and it can't prepare you for life on the other side of death? There's no real gain. You might gain some wealth, but with that you're going to gain discontentment. But if you pursue Christ, if you have godliness, it's great gain. You may or may not gain some material wealth here and now. But you will have a new freedom and a liberating way of walking through life. You'll no longer be a slave to yourself or a slave to your entitlement or a slave to consumerism or this desire to acquire more and more money. Because in Christ, you'll have a contentment that is imperishable. And God can satisfy you and give you contentment where you are, as you are. And it's something available here and now. And it is ultimately the only thing you'll be able to take with you through death.